Book Four, Chapter Eight of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Four, Chapter Eight. Discontent of the troops. Insurrection in the capital. Return of Cortes. General signs of hostility. Massacre by Alvarado. Rising of the Aztecs. The tempest that had raged so wildly during the night passed away with the morning, which rose bright and unclouded on the field of battle. As the light advanced, it revealed more strikingly the disparity of the two forces so lately opposed to each other. Those of Narvaez could not conceal their chagrin, and murmurs of displeasure became audible as they contrasted their own superior numbers and perfect appointments with the wayworn visages and rude attire of their handful of enemies. It was with some satisfaction, therefore, that the general beheld his dusky allies from Chinantla, two thousand in number, arrive upon the field. They were a fine athletic set of men, and, as they advanced in a sort of promiscuous order, so to speak, with their gay banners of feather-work, and their lances tipped with itztli and copper, glistering in the morning sun, they had something of an air of military discipline. They came too late for the action, indeed, but Cortes was not sorry to exhibit to his new followers the extent of his resources in the country. As he had now no occasion for his Indian allies, after a courteous reception and a liberal recompense, he dismissed them to their homes. He then used his utmost endeavours to allay the discontent of the troops. He addressed them in his most soft and insinuating tones, and was by no means frugal of his promises. He suited the action to the word. There were few of them, but had lost their accoutrements, or their baggage, or horses taken and appropriated by the victors. This last article was in great request among the latter, and many a soldier, weary with the long marches hitherto made on foot, had provided himself, as he imagined, with a much more comfortable, as well as creditable, conveyance for the rest of the campaign. The general now commanded everything to be restored. They were embarked in the same cause, he said, and should share with one another equally. He went still further, and distributed among the soldiers of Narvaez a quantity of gold and other precious commodities gathered from the neighbouring tribes, or found in his rivals' quarters. These proceedings, however politic in reference to his new followers, gave great disgust to his old. Our commander, they cried, has forsaken his friends for his foes. We stood by him in his hour of distress, and are rewarded with blows and wounds, while the spoil goes to our enemies. The indignant soldiery commissioned the priest Olmedo and Alonso de Avila to lay their complaints before Cortes. The ambassadors stated them without reserve, comparing their commander's conduct to the ungrateful proceeding of Alexander, who, when he gained a victory, usually gave away more to his enemies than to the troops who enabled him to beat them. 
Cortes was greatly perplexed. Victorious or defeated, his path seemed equally beset with difficulties. He endeavoured to soothe their irritation by pleading the necessity of the case. Our new comrades, he said, are formidable from their numbers, so much so that we are even now much more in their power than they are in ours. Our only security is to make them not merely confederates, but friends. On any cause of disgust we shall have the whole battle to fight over again, and, if they are united, under a much greater disadvantage than before. I have considered your interests, he added, as much as my own. All that I have is yours. But why should there be any ground for discontent when the whole country, with its riches, is before us? And our augmented strength must henceforth secure the undisturbed control of it. But Cortes did not rely wholly on argument for the restoration of tranquillity. He knew this to be incompatible with inaction and he made arrangements to divide his forces at once, and to employ them on distant services. He selected a detachment of two hundred men, under Diego de Ordaz, whom he ordered to form the settlement before meditated on the Coatzalcoalco. A like number was sent with Velázquez de León to secure the province of Panuco, some three degrees to the north, on the Mexican Gulf. Twenty in each detachment were drafted from his own veterans. Two hundred men he dispatched to Vera Cruz, with orders to have the rigging, iron, and everything portable on board of the fleet of Narvaez brought on shore, and the vessels completely dismantled. He appointed a person named Cavallero, superintendent of the marine, with instructions that if any ships hereafter should enter the port, they should be dismantled in like manner, and their officers imprisoned on shore. But while he was thus occupied with new schemes of discovery and conquest, he received such astounding intelligence from Mexico, as compelled him to concentrate all his faculties and his forces on that one point. The city was in a state of insurrection. No sooner had the struggle with his rival been decided, than Cortes dispatched a courier with the tidings to the capital. In less than a fortnight the same messenger returned with letters from Alvarado, conveying the alarming information that the Mexicans were in arms, and had vigorously assaulted the Spaniards in their own quarters. The enemy, he added, had burnt the brigantines, by which Cortes had secured the means of retreat in case of the destruction of the bridges. They had attempted to force the defences, and had succeeded in partially undermining them and they had overwhelmed the garrison with a tempest of missiles which had killed several and wounded a great number the letter concluded with beseeching his commander to hasten to their relief if he would save them or keep his hold on the capital these tidings were a heavy blow to the general the heavier it seemed coming as they did in the hour of triumph when he had thought to have all his enemies at his feet there was no room for hesitation to lose their footing in the capital, the noblest city in the western world, would be to lose the country itself, which looked up to it as its head. He opened the matter fully to his soldiers, calling on all who would save their countrymen to follow him. All declared their readiness to go, showing an alacrity, says Diaz, which some would have been slow to manifest had they foreseen the future. Cortes now made preparations for instant departure. 
he countermanded the orders previously given to Velasquez and Ordaz, and directed them to join him with their forces at Tlaxcala. He recalled the troops from Veracruz, leaving only a hundred men in garrison there, under command of one Rodrigo Rangre, for he could not spare the services of Sandoval at this crisis. He left his sick and wounded at Sempoala under the charge of a small detachment, directing that they should follow as soon as they were in marching order. Having completed these arrangements, he set out from Sempoala, well supplied with provisions by its hospitable cacique, who attended him some leagues on his way. The Totonac chief seems to have had an amiable facility of accommodating himself to the powers that were in the ascendant. Nothing worthy of notice occurred during the first part of the march. The troops everywhere met with a friendly reception from the peasantry, who readily supplied their wants. Some time before reaching Tlaxcala, the route lay through a country thinly settled, and the army experienced considerable suffering from want of food, and still more from that of water. Their distress increased to an alarming degree, as, in the hurry of their march, they travelled with the meridian sun beating fiercely on their heads. Several faltered by the way, and throwing themselves down by the roadside, seemed incapable of further effort, and almost indifferent to life. In this extremity Cortes sent forward a small detachment of horse to procure provisions in Tlaxcala, and speedily followed in person. On arriving he found abundant supplies already prepared by the hospitable natives. They were sent back to the troops. The stragglers were collected one by one, refreshments were administered, and the army, restored in strength and spirits, entered the republican capital. Here they gathered little additional news respecting the events in Mexico, which a popular rumour attributed to the secret encouragement and machinations of Montezuma. Cortes was commodiously lodged in the quarters of Mashishka, one of the four chiefs of the Republic. They readily furnished him with two thousand troops. There was no want of heartiness when the war was with their ancient enemy, the Aztec. The Spanish commander, on reviewing his forces, after the junction with his two captains, found that they amounted to about a thousand foot and one hundred horse, besides the Tlaxcalan levies. In the infantry were nearly a hundred arquebusiers, with as many crossbowmen, and the part of the army brought over by Narvaez was admirably equipped. It was inferior, however, to his own veterans in what is better than any outward appointments, military training, and familiarity with the peculiar service in which they were engaged. Leaving these friendly quarters, the Spaniards took a more northerly route, as more direct than that by which they had before penetrated into the valley. It was the road to Tezcuco. It still compelled them to climb the same bold range of the Cordilleras, which attains its greatest elevation in the two mighty volcanoes at whose base they had before travelled. As they descended into the populous plains, their reception by the natives was very different from that which they had experienced on the preceding visit. There were no groups of curious peasantry to be seen gazing at them as they passed, and offering their simple hospitality. The supplies they asked were not refused, but granted with an ungracious air that showed the blessing of their giver did not accompany them. 
This air of reserve became still more marked as the army entered the suburbs of the ancient capital of the Acolous. No one came forth to greet them, and the population seemed to have dwindled away. So many of them were withdrawn to the neighbouring scene of hostilities at Mexico. Their cold reception was a sensible mortification to the veterans of Cortes, who, judging from the past, had boasted to their new comrades of the sensation their presence would excite among the natives. The cacique of the place, who, as it may be remembered, had been created through the influence of Cortes, was himself absent. The general drew an ill omen from all these circumstances, which even raised an uncomfortable apprehension in his mind respecting the fate of the garrison in Mexico. But his doubts were soon dispelled by the arrival of a messenger in a canoe from that city, whence he had escaped through the remissness of the enemy, or perhaps with their connivance. He brought dispatches from Alvarado, informing his commander that the Mexicans had for the last fortnight desisted from active hostilities, and converted their operations into a blockade. The garrison had suffered greatly, but Alvarado expressed his conviction that the siege would be raised, and tranquillity restored, on the approach of his countrymen. Montezuma sent a messenger also to the same effect. At the same time he exculpated himself from any part in the late hostilities, which he said had not only been conducted without his privity, but contrary to his inclination and efforts. The Spanish general, having halted long enough to refresh his wearied troops, took up his march along the southern margin of the lake, which led him over the same causeway by which he had before entered the capital. It was the day consecrated to St. John the Baptist, the 24th of June, 1520. But how different was the scene from that presented on his former entrance! No crowds now lined the roads, no boats swarmed on the lake, filled with admiring spectators. A single pirogue might now and then be seen in the distance, like a spy stealthily watching their movements, and darting away the moment it had attracted notice. A death-like stillness brooded over the scene, a stillness that spoke louder to the heart than the acclamations of multitudes. Cortes rode on moodily at the head of his battalions, finding abundant food for meditation, doubtless, in this change of circumstances. As if to dispel these gloomy reflections, he ordered his trumpets to sound, and their clear, shrill notes, borne across the waters, told the inhabitants of the beleaguered fortress that their friends were at hand. They were answered by a joyous peal of artillery, which seemed to give a momentary exhilaration to the troops as they quickened their pace, traversed the great drawbridges, and once more found themselves within the walls of the imperial city. The appearance of things here was not such as to allay their apprehensions. In some places they beheld the smaller bridges removed, intimating too plainly, now that their brigantines were destroyed, how easy it would be to cut off their retreat. The town seemed even more deserted than Tezcuco. Its once busy and crowded population had mysteriously vanished and as the Spaniards defiled through the empty streets, the tramp of their horses' feet upon the pavement was answered by dull and melancholy echoes that fell heavily on their hearts. With saddened feelings they reached the great gates of the palace of Ashayacatl. 
The gates were thrown open, and Cortes and his veterans, rushing in, were cordially embraced by their companions in arms, while both parties soon forgot the present in the interesting recapitulation of the past. The first inquiries of the general were respecting the origin of the tumult. The accounts were various. Some imputed it to the desire of the Mexicans to release their sovereign from confinement. Others to the design of cutting off the garrison while crippled by the absence of Cortes and their countrymen. All agreed, however, in tracing the immediate cause to the violence of Alvarado. It was common for the Aztecs to celebrate an annual festival in May, in honour of their patron war-god. It was called the Incensing of Huitzilopochtli, and was commemorated by sacrifice, religious songs and dances, in which most of the nobles engaged, for it was one of the great festivals which displayed the pomp of the Aztec ritual. As it was held in the court of the Teocali, in the immediate neighbourhood of the Spanish quarters, and as a part of the temple itself was reserved for a Christian chapel, the caciques asked permission of Alvarado to perform their rites there. They requested also to be allowed the presence of Montezuma. This latter petition Alvarado declined, in obedience to the injunctions of Cortes, but acquiesced in the former, on condition that the Aztecs should celebrate no human sacrifices, and should come without weapons. They assembled accordingly on the day appointed, to the number of six hundred, at the smallest computation. They were dressed in their most magnificent gala costumes, with their graceful mantles of featherwork sprinkled with precious stones, and their necks, arms, and legs ornamented with collars and bracelets of gold. They had that love of gaudy splendour which belongs to semi-civilised nations, and on these occasions displayed all the pomp and profusion of their barbaric wardrobes. Alvarado and his soldiers attended as spectators, some of them taking their station at the gates, as if by chance, and others mingling in the crowd. They were all armed, a circumstance which, as it was usual, excited no attention. The Aztecs were soon engrossed by the exciting movement of the dance, accompanied by their religious chant, and wild, discordant minstrelsy. While thus occupied, Alvarado and his men, at a concerted signal, rushed with drawn swords on their victims. Unprotected by armour or weapons of any kind, they were hewn down without resistance by their assailants, who, in their bloody work, says a contemporary, showed no touch of pity or compunction. Some fled to the gates, but were caught on the long pikes of the soldiers. Others, who attempted to scale the coetepantli, or wall of serpents, as it was called, which surrounded the area, shared the like fate, or were cut to pieces, or shot by the ruthless soldiery. The pavement, says a writer of the age, ran with streams of blood, like water in a heavy shower. Not an Aztec of all that gay company was left alive. It was repeating the dreadful scene of Cholula, with the disgraceful addition, that the Spaniards, not content with slaughtering their victims, rifled them of the precious ornaments on their persons. On this sad day fell the flower of the Aztec nobility. Not a family of note, but had mourning and desolation brought within its walls, and many a doleful ballad rehearsing the tragic incidents of the story, and adapted to the plaintive national airs, continued to be chanted by the natives long after the subjugation of the country.
Various explanations have been given of this atrocious deed, but few historians have been content to admit that of Alvarado himself. According to this, intelligence had been obtained through his spies, some of them Mexicans, of an intended rising of the Indians. The celebration of this festival was fixed on as the period for its execution, when the caciques would be met together, and would easily rouse the people to support them. Alvarado, advised of all this, had forbidden them to wear arms at their meeting. While affecting to comply, they had secreted their weapons in the neighbouring arsenals, whence they could readily withdraw them. But his own blow, by anticipating theirs, defeated the design, and, as he confidently hoped, would deter the Aztecs from a similar attempt in future. Such is the account of the matter given by Alvarado. But, if true, why did he not verify his assertion by exposing the arms thus secreted? Why did he not vindicate his conduct in the eyes of the Mexicans generally, by publicly avowing the treason of the nobles, as was done by Cortes at Cholula? The whole looks much like an apology devised after the commission of the deed, to cover up its atrocity. Some contemporaries assign a very different motive for the massacre, which, according to them, originated in the cupidity of the conquerors, as shown by their plundering the bodies of their victims. Bernal Diaz, who, though not present, had conversed familiarly with those who were, vindicates them from the charge of this unworthy motive. According to him, Alvarado struck the blow in order to intimidate the Aztecs from any insurrectionary movement but whether he had reason to apprehend such or even affected to do so before the massacre the old chronicler does not inform us on reflection it seems scarcely possible that so foul a deed and one involving so much hazard to the spaniards themselves should have been perpetrated from the mere desire of getting possession of the baubles worn on the persons of the natives it is more likely this was an afterthought, suggested to the rapacious soldiery by the display of the spoil before them. It is not improbable that Alvarado may have gathered rumours of a conspiracy among the nobles, rumours perhaps derived through the Tlascalans, their inveterate foes, and for that reason very little deserving of credit. He proposed to defeat it by imitating the example of his commander at Cholula but he omitted to imitate his leader in taking precautions against the subsequent rising of the populace, and he grievously miscalculated when he confounded the bold and warlike Aztec with the effeminate Cholulan. No sooner was the butchery accomplished than the tidings spread like wildfire through the capital. Men could scarcely credit their senses. All they had hitherto suffered the desecration of their temples, the imprisonment of their sovereign, the insults heaped on his person, all were forgotten in this one act. Every feeling of long smothered hostility and rancour now burst forth in the cry for vengeance. Every former sentiment of superstitious dread was merged in that of inextinguishable hatred. It required no effort of the priests, though this was not wanting, to fan these passions into a blaze. The city rose in arms to a man, and on the following dawn, almost before the Spaniards could secure themselves in their defences, they were assaulted with desperate fury. Some of the assailants attempted to scale the walls, others succeeded in partially undermining and in setting fire to the works. 
Whether they would have succeeded in carrying the place by storm is doubtful, but at the prayers of the garrison Montezuma himself interfered, and mounting the battlements addressed the populace, whose fury he endeavoured to mitigate by urging considerations for his own safety. They respected their monarch so far as to desist from further attempts to storm the fortress, but changed their operations into a regular blockade. They threw up works around the palace to prevent the egress of the Spaniards. They suspended the tianguit or market to preclude the possibility of their enemies obtaining supplies, and they then quietly sat down with feelings of sullen desperation waiting for the hour when famine should throw their victims into their hands. The condition of the besieged, meanwhile, was sufficiently distressing. Their magazines of provisions, it is true, were not exhausted, but they suffered greatly from want of water, which, within the enclosure, was exceedingly brackish, for the soil was saturated with the salt of the surrounding element. In this extremity they discovered, it is said, a spring of fresh water in the area, such springs were known in some other parts of the city but discovered first under these circumstances it was accounted as nothing less than a miracle still they suffered much from their past encounters seven spaniards and many tlascalans had fallen and there was scarcely one of either nation who had not received several wounds in this situation far from their own countrymen without expectation of succour from abroad they seemed to have no alternative before them but a lingering death by famine, or one more dreadful on the altar of sacrifice. From this gloomy state they were relieved by the coming of their comrades. Cortés calmly listened to the explanation made by Alvarado, but before it was ended the conviction must have forced itself on his mind that he had made a wrong selection for this important post. Yet the mistake was natural. Alvarado was a cavalier of high family, gallant and chivalrous, and his warm personal friend. He had talents for action, was possessed of firmness and intrepidity, while his frank and dazzling manners made the Tonatiu an especial favourite with the Mexicans. But underneath this showy exterior, the future conqueror of Guatemala concealed a heart rash, rapacious, and cruel. He was altogether destitute of that moderation which, in the delicate position he occupied, was a quality of more worth than all the rest. When Alvarado had concluded his answers to the several interrogatories of Cortés, the brow of the latter darkened, as he said to his lieutenant, "'You have done badly. You have been false to your trust. Your conduct has been that of a madman.' and turning abruptly on his heel, he left him in undisguised displeasure. Yet this was not a time to break with one so popular, and in many respects so important to him as this captain, much less to inflict on him the punishment he merited. The Spaniards were like mariners labouring in a heavy tempest, whose bark nothing but the dexterity of the pilot and the hearty co-operation of the crew can save from foundering. Dissensions at such a moment must be fatal. Cortés, it is true, felt strong in his present resources. He now found himself at the head of a force which could scarcely amount to less than 1,250 Spaniards and 8,000 native warriors, principally Tlascalans. But though relying on this to overawe resistance, the very augmentations of numbers increased the difficulty of subsistence. 
discontented with himself, disgusted with his officer, and embarrassed by the disastrous consequences in which Alvarado's intemperance had involved him. He became irritable, and indulged in a petulance by no means common. For though a man of lively passions by nature, he held them habitually under control. On the day that Cortes arrived, Montezuma had left his own quarters to welcome him. But the Spanish commander, distrusting, as it would seem, however unreasonably, his good faith, received him so coldly that the Indian monarch withdrew, displeased and dejected, to his apartment. As the Mexican populace made no show of submission, and brought no supplies to the army, the general's ill-humour with the emperor continued. When, therefore, Montezuma sent some of the nobles to ask an interview with Cortes, the latter, turning to his own officers, haughtily exclaimed, "'What have I to do with this dog of a king, who suffers us to starve before his eyes?' His captains, among whom were Olid, de Avila, and Velasquez de Leon, endeavoured to mitigate his anger, reminding him, in respectful terms, that, had it not been for the emperor, the garrison might even now have been overwhelmed by the enemy. This remonstrance only chafed him the more. Did not the dog, he asked, repeating the opprobrious epithet, betray us in his communications with Narvaez? And does he not now suffer his markets to be closed, and leave us to die of famine? Then, turning fiercely to the Mexicans, he said, Go, tell your master and his people to open the markets, or we will do it for them at their cost. The chiefs, who had gathered the import of his previous taunt on their sovereign, from his tone and gesture, or perhaps from some comprehensions of his language, left his presence swelling with resentment, and in communicating his message, took care it should lose none of its effect. Shortly after, Cortes, at the suggestion, it is said, of Montezuma, released his brother, Quitlahua, lord of Iztapalapan, who, it will be remembered, had been seized on suspicion of cooperating with the chief of Tezcuco in his meditated revolt. It was thought he might be of service in allaying the present tumult, and bringing the populace to a better state of feeling. But he returned no more to the fortress. He was a bold, ambitious prince, and the injuries he had received from the Spaniards rankled deep in his bosom. He was presumptive heir to the crown, which, by the Aztec laws of succession, descended much more frequently in a collateral than in a direct line. The people welcomed him as the representative of their reign, and chose him to supply the place of Montezuma during his captivity. Quitlahua willingly accepted the post of honour and of danger. He was an experienced warrior, and exerted himself to reorganise the disorderly levies, and to arrange a more efficient plan of operations. The effect was soon visible. Cortes, meanwhile, had so little doubt of his ability to overawe the insurgents, that he wrote to that effect to the garrison of Villarica, by the same dispatches in which he informed them of his safe arrival in the capital. But scarcely had his messenger been gone half an hour, when he returned breathless with terror, and covered with wounds. The city, he said, was all in arms. The drawbridges were raised, and the enemy would soon be upon them. He spoke truth. It was not long before a hoarse, sullen sound became audible, like that of the roaring of distant waters. 
It grew louder and louder, till from the parapet surrounding the enclosure, the great avenues which led to it might be seen dark with the masses of warriors, who came rolling on in a confused tide towards the fortress. At the same time, the terraces and athoteas, or flat roofs, in the neighbourhood, were thronged with combatants, brandishing their missiles, who seemed to have risen up as if by magic. It was a spectacle to appall the stoutest. But the dark storm to which it was the prelude, and which gathered deeper and deeper round the Spaniards during the remainder of their residence in the capital, must form the subject of a separate book. End of Book 4, Chapter 8